Uh, if you didn't notice in our bulletin, we're starting a, a new series. Uh, and so it's in the book of Job. And I thought maybe a good way to begin this morning, new year, new series, would be just to help frame this time out that we're going to be in in these next weeks, um, share like a, a statement with you, a well-known statement that I think all of us have heard in one way, shape, or form. It's, the statement goes like this, begin with the end in mind. You've all heard that, I think, at one time or another. It was coined by Stephen Covey in his best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I've actually never read. So I read the Cliff's Notes of it this week because that's how I roll. But um, it's based on this older axiom by the Stoke philosopher Seneca, who in one of his works said, let all your efforts be directed towards something and let them keep that end in view. So begin with the end in mind. And in the most basic form, these statements are based on our capacity to imagine things. We as human beings have a unique capacity to use our imaginations. And that's the ability we have to envision in our minds what we cannot at present see with our eyes. And uh, as Covey says in his work, it's based on this principle that all things are created twice. There's first this mental creation, and then second, a a physical creation. So the the physical creation of things always follows the mental creation, just like a building follows a blueprint. That's just how it works. Um, and so this is about connecting with how we're created, our uniqueness, as well as how we're being called, our vocation. And, and the goal being that we might just most fully express our values and our purpose and our truest selves. And it's a powerful concept. It applies not only to our collective lives. You see it in leadership and management and sports. You see this, uh, you know, the Winter Olympics are going to be starting. You see it in downhill skiing. You see them up, the, the skiers up there going through their whole run before they ever step into the gate. Um, they're visualizing the perfect run, right? It also applies to the realm of our personal lives, uh, where many of us are going beyond the trite New Year's resolutions and the living our best lives hashtag, and I hope, I think, in, envisioning and thinking deeply about our hopes and our questions and where we feel most connected to ourselves, to God, to others, how, and how we're being shaped in those spaces, and how we might participate with God in even shaping that path. And then Baby Yoda, somebody put, is that a joke? I'm sorry, Baby Yoda's sitting in the front seat, hi. So that's, I don't know, that's, that's great, I love it, uh, just caught my eye, I love, love it. <laughs> Back on task. So begin with the end in mind. <laughs> so part of why I share this as we begin Job is that uh, beginning with the end in mind in the book of Job is no less significant than doing it as we begin a new year. You know, as we begin a, a new book or a study of anything as Western people, we're usually taught to begin at the beginning, right? Preferably if it's a nonfiction with a preface or introduction where the author's going to explain their intent, right? Lay out their hopes, maybe and offer you a summary. So that's all you ever have to read if you're like me with Stephen Covey. But if it's not nonfiction, if it's a fiction, you know, at least begin with chapter one, right? This reminds me of my dad when I was growing up, um, wasn't a big reader. My dad is a blue-collar, hard-working guy, um, and worked my entire childhood from before dawn to after dark, well after dark. I never saw him. His hands are still leathery from the work, and he's well-retired. But at times, I'd catch him reading. You know, every now and then, he'd read a book, sometimes nonfiction, but most frequently fiction. Um, John Grisham was his favorite author, which kind of dates me a little bit, but he loves the John Grisham books. But always, whenever I caught him, sitting in his recliner, drinking his coffee, 
he starts, he'd start those books with the last chapter. Always. And even at a young age, I remember my annoyance with this. Like, who does this? You don't, you, that's not how you read a book, Dad. You, 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 this is not a choose your own adventure. You have to start in chapter one and then go to the end. Begin at the beginning, right? Uh, which makes maybe sense for John Grisham. But listen, if we do this with Job, the danger, if we, if we merely read this as a, a story from beginning to end, a good story, a complex story, perhaps for you a problematic story, it becomes merely a story about the question of evil and suffering and the odyssey, to use a fancy theological word. We think Job is really about that, and for many of us, we don't bother with it because it's too hard or it's too on the nose. It's too heady. It's too on the nose. Like, it's not just about suffering, but um, it's our lives, right? Um, it, it's your life. Um, there's, n- and there's nothing more certain, right, that Job brings up for us than the fact that you and I are going to suffer. There's nothing more certain in life. Or at the very least, bear the suffering, bear witness to the suffering of other people, whether that's disease, death, disaster, deep disappointment. I think a lot of us are living with discouragement right now after two-plus years of this virus. We just have no sense of where we're going, and we're tired. I think, you know, that, the deadly Ds, right? We're all living with it. And, and yet, to not, not to minimize any of those experiences that you might be having. Those are significant. Um, we want to honor your experience here with the utmost compassion. We want to say, I think from here, that our desire as a community is to walk with you, be present to you through your suffering and those seasons. But, and this is a big but, so listen, um, the story of Job is not ultimately or even finally about suffering, though we're going to learn a lot about suffering in the coming weeks. Suffering, and Job's our suffering is, is just a facet, I would say, of a much larger and more consequential thesis, if you will. So there, and there's something you'll find in the book of Job, about Job's suffering, through Job's suffering, if you'll begin with the end in mind, if you literally will read Job backwards. Start at the end, like my dad. So we're not going to literally read it backwards, go from the end and all the way to the beginning. That's not how my dad read, but we are, we're going to get to chapter 1 and 2 next week, so come back. But we are going to start today by, by jumping to the end and consider some verses there at the end of Job, Job 42, like my dad would, and see if we might allow that to frame the rest of our time in Job. Okay, so turn to Job 42 if you have a Bible on your lap or on your app. It doesn't matter. Um, Job comes right before the Psalms, if you're curious. It's in part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Psalms are with Job, so that's interesting. Um, And Job 42, right before the Psalms, is the last chapter. We're going to read chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. And this is uh, after all the speeches. You know, Job is just a collection of speeches between their dialogues, between God and Satan, between Job and his friends, and then between Job and God. This is after all the speeches. Job finally says something. He responds. This is Job's response. Job's sort of last words, if you will. Job 42, 1 to 6. This is the common English Bible, CEB. It'll be on the screen too. Job answered the Lord. I know you can do anything. No plans of yours can be opposed successfully. You said... Who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I've indeed spoken about things I didn't understand, 
wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen and I will speak. I will question you and you will inform me. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. This is God's word to us. So our teaching team earlier this winter uh, had an opportunity to spend time with a professor from SPU, Dr. Sarah Koenig, who teaches on the book of Job to undergrad students there. And uh, she was actually my Hebrew preceptor, which is a fancy word for graduate assistant while I was at Princeton and became a good friend there. And she and her family are uh, members at Bethany, and they go to Bethany Green Lake as well. Um, And she said in our discussion with, with us, that how we read this particular section of Job, Job 42, 1 to 6, and in particular, verse 6, where I want to land today, makes a huge difference in how we read all of Job. Uh, That this verse and its interpretation has such a powerful shaping influence on our understanding of Job and really on our own lives. And so it's it's such an important translation, So uh, uh, important verse. So I want to take up that translation challenge with you for a few moments um, and, and sort of wrestle with what this verse and this section means. And then we'll go into the rest of Job next week. So here's a few examples that are going to be on the screen of this verse and some of the various English translations that you might have had open on your lap or in your app, <laughs> okay? In the King James, which maybe not any of you are reading anymore, but you may have grown up with, um, and you may be familiar with this language. This is Job 42.6 translated, Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, likewise, in some of the modern translations, which some of us are now using, NIV, NRSV, ESV, it, it says this, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, the contemporary English version, which is a, just a newer, kind of like the, I guess, the message or New Living Translation, says, like, I hate myself, and I sit here on dust and, in dust and ashes to show my sorrow. Getting a little closer. The Good News Translation, how many of you guys use that one? Nobody. Well, I think we used to back in the 80s. But anyway, I'm ashamed of all I've said and repent in dust and ashes. So you're kind of getting maybe a little scope of what this verse is saying. A couple Catholic translations use this language of reprehension. Uh, the Catholic public domain translation, for example, says, I find myself reprehensible and I'll do penance in embers and ashes. So there's a little nuance to it. There's literally dozens. You could go into Bible Hub on the web and look at this, and there's dozens of translations and different ways of looking at this one verse. And the reason for that is that the Hebrew is really difficult here. I mean, the Hebrew of Job is really difficult. It's some of the oldest Hebrew in the whole Bible. It's poetry, so poetry in general is hard to understand, so it's hard to get a a real understanding of what these metaphors mean in different languages, which, given that translation challenge, you might guess, depending on your translation, your preferred translation, is problematic. When you think about the impact, you might have the intent, but the impact of this verse on our lives as readers, how reading this word now shapes us. I mean, think about this for a moment. If we translate this verse as, I abhor myself, or I despise myself, or I hate myself, you can see the obvious difficulty. Job, he's at the end of the day, end of the season and suffering, he's doesn't yet know what's going to happen, how the end of the story is going to go. We know, but he didn't know. He's come to a place of deep self-loathing. His suffering has produced in him uh, shame. He, I mean, that's captured even in one of the translations. I, I just, 
I, I hate myself. He's hostile against himself. And this is actually what some people suggest that he means when he says, I lay down in dust and ashes, that he's thinking about this ancient idea that we now has become part of our modern funeral liturgy where we say to someone who's died, to the family, we therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That He's referring to that. He's thinking about his own death or at least wishing it. He's wishing he were dead. I'm as good as dead. I got nothing. And I think that's how my, some of us might feel about our own suffering. We're ashamed that we have even suffered this far. We uh, hate, our, hate our stories. We're, we feel despised by God. Um, we feel a profound sense that it would not only end, but perhaps in moments, if we're honest with ourselves, that we just don't have the strength to go on anymore. Suffering is indeed an overwhelming experience. And what Dr. Koenig said to us in her time, and she told us, is that in her study of Job over the years, these translations are problematic not only because of how they shape us as readers profoundly, but also how misleading they are of the wider story of Job. Remember, we're not, we're remembering, remember that Job isn't just about suffering, but they shape how we then understand Job and his story. If, if Job is ashamed, in other words, of everything he said to God, of his, of his experience, of just who he is, if he's deeply despised because he suffered so much, I guess the question then becomes, like, how do you square that as you start reading Job from the beginning with the rest of Job? Where you're going to find multiple instances of how Job is described as blameless, and he hasn't done or said a thing wrong. Job 1.8, God says of Job to the Satan, we're going to get to this next week, in this famous wager, uh, which sets the whole story up, there's no one on earth like Job. He's blameless, he's upright, a man who fears God, shuns evil. How do you square that person, the beloved of God, with this, this sufferer, you know? All of, through all of Job, if you read it, he's been faithful. He hasn't spoken ill of God through the entire experience. And in that frame, if you think about it, if, though Job is the victim of suffering, throughout the entire story, he's not the problem of suffering. It's not about Job. I mean, this is not some reward-punishment scheme or logic that many of us were raised thinking about or prosperity gospel thinking where we're, we're all too familiar with this, you know, if we're good, good things are going to happen, right? Uh, if we're bad, bad things will come, like the naughty nice mantra of Santa Claus. I know many of us don't believe in Santa Claus, but we have this deep belief, maybe subconscious belief, that in the efficacy of our own goodness— if I just am good enough, if I go to church enough, if I serve and give enough, I pray enough, maybe, maybe I'll have a chance at good things. That all the bad things, and that all the bad things happen to us on the corollary, we've been taught to think at least, maybe you don't actually actively think this way, it happened for a reason. If I'm experiencing bad things, maybe it's because of something in my life. Uh, some of you have heard of Kate Bowler. She, uh, as many of you have some of you are reading her books. Uh, she's written a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've, li- I've Loved. How many have read this book or are reading it? Yeah, it's, it's a great book. So she's an author. She's a podcast host. She's a professor at Duke. She's also a cancer survivor. So at 35, she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. She's surviving. Um, but this happened at a time, interestingly, when she was writing and researching the prosperity gospel movement. And so it's the confluence of these two experiences that caused her to rethink 
not only her research, but also her beliefs. She felt a sense of conviction, actually. Because, see, she's writing about this movement that we feel, and especially in the Northwest, uh, this is an aberration, right? We don't, uh, we don't have prosperity gospel out here. We were, you know, we're, we're beyond that. That's the other parts of the country thing. But here's what she says in her pref- preface. Read the preface. <laughs> I'd love to report, this is a quote, that what I found in the prosperity gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away. What I discovered was both familiar and painfully sweet. The promise that I could curate my life, minimize my losses, and stand on my successes. Indeed, no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at this creed's outrageous certainties, I craved them just the same. I have my own prosperity gospel. It was a flowering weed grown in with all the rest. It was certainty, plain and simple, that God had a worthy plan for my life in which every setback would also be a step forward. I wanted God to make me good, make me faithful. With just a few shining accolades along the way, anything would do if hardships were only detours along my life's journey. I believe God would make a way. Don't need to show your hands here, but how many of us believe God's going to make a way if I'm just... If I just show up, if I'm just good, how many of us believe in some of these things? Have, have, have lived like Bowler, believing that everything happens for a reason. There's got to be a reason for this, this suffering, this experience. And if I can just do good, be good, be better, good things are going to come eventually. My day is going to come. And then if good things aren't coming, you know, if like Job or Kate Bowler, you're facing a very, very painful experience or season, then maybe, even subconsciously, maybe it's because of something in me, a defect, something I've done, a sin, a a shortcoming. Maybe it's me. And if you have, and, you know, Kate Bowler's testimony convicts me. I've been somebody who's been, as a pastor, very fond of poking my finger at the prosperity gospel movement. And and I'm convicted that maybe I have. I've, I've held this thinking Job is challenging us to, con- to reconsider the difficult truth that bad things happen to good people. We all know that. We just don't like to say it. Or you might just put it more simply, that bad things happen and for simply no reason. That we live in a haphazard world that good and evil and blessing and curse are not predicated or conditioned upon your faithfulness or lack thereof. I know that's a lot to take in. <laughs> And a theology that might be a little different than what you've heard. So just pause for a moment. Again, we're reading Job backwards. And it's in that reading uh, that we're invited to maybe understand Job 42.6 a little differently. You know, I shared some of the more common translations of this verse with you where we hear shame and, dis- and self-hatred and self-loathing. Here's a couple more worth considering. The common English Bible, which we read, I don't know if you caught this, but this is what Job says there. And this isn't, by the way, these translations are not just people kind of trying to massage the text to make it feel better. The meaning of these words in the ancient languages are robust. They have so many different ways in which we can understand them. These are are possibilities for these words, okay? So the Common English Bible translates verse 6 this way. I relent, therefore I relent, and I find comfort on dust and ashes. So there's a nuance there in, in this word of comfort that we're going to get to, but it's, and it's significant. The other translation which I want to mention is the Peshitta translation or the Lamsa Bible, which is 
translated by this guy named George Lamsa, who was an Assyrian scholar, a member of the Eastern Syriac Church, so part of the Eastern family of, of Christianity. He translated this verse this way, Because of all this, I shall be silent. That's interesting. And I will be revived on dust and ashes. So comfort, silence, and revival. He puts it more simply in a different version of his. He says, therefore, I just keep silent and repent in dust and ashes. So if you know the different meanings of of repentance, just to go into that word for a moment, you know that it's a very complex word. It can mean to be sorry, to be moved to pity, right? You feel sorrow. Um, It can mean to suffer grief over your failings or what you've done or not done. But, and this is important, it can also mean, and we often don't bring this up, and I, I failed you for not doing this, to be comforted or relieved. To repent is, is, a, is a way of saying I'm comforted, I'm relieved right now of all the things I've been carrying. To be revived, as Lamsa suggests. That's a little bit of what revival is, is to experience, uh, like we did last week in the sale service, to be uplifted, be revived by pausing in God's presence. Fascinating word, many meetings. And it's that final meeting that I just suggest Job is experiencing here at the end of things. Not self-loathing, not so much sorrow at his own shortcomings. Maybe not not even the disconnect that, wow, how can this be happening to me? I've been so faithful, so good. How can I be suffering so much? Um, Why is my life so bad? What I suggest here is that Job is finding a sense of comfort and relief in the midst of, like I remember I said this, he doesn't know what's going to happen next, in the midst of his abject suffering. He's come through all of it without a sense of redemption, without a sense of hope, and, and yet, he doesn't know the end of the story, and yet, he's declaring to God and he's declaring to us today, I'm comforted in this very moment. I'm at the lowest of low points in my life. I've lost everything, and yet I am revived. What the heck is that about? Who says that, right? Um, well, just digging a little more deeply. If you know the context, and maybe you don't, so I'll just unpack it real quick, of this statement. Job and God have been having this conversation with one another. This is kind of chapters 38 to 41. And God's speech, if you read this, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks, it manifests or, or comes out of a whirlwind. You're familiar with this, that uh, in, in Job 38, or 41, I mean, or 38, I mean, uh, God says, it says that God now finally answered Job from the eye, to use the message translation of a violent storm. There's a storm, and God speaks out of the storm. You know, who is this that darkens my counsel, right? One frequent line of interpretation is to take that whirlwind as, as indicating that God is trying to intimidate Job. Like, shut up. Sit down, shut up, be quiet, let me talk. Right? I mean, how many of you have heard that before? Like, overwhelm him, overwhelm Job with this, just the sheer force of his arguments. Like, look at creation. Look at all I've done for you. Right? Look at me. Look how great I am. Just be quiet, you little man. You know? And I think we think of God just blowing us away sometimes like that. Which would confirm Job's worst suspicions of God. In chapter 9, uh, he suspects for a moment that God is crushing him through his suffering. Maybe there is something I've done. Our worst suspicions that God is just some cosmic killjoy. God is not good. God is not loving. He can't be trusted. 
But a more careful reading of this verse, this context actually, of the whirlwind suggests that what's happening here is in fact actually the first rains of the fall. So uh, Gerald Jansen, he's a Hebrew Old Testament scholar, and he's written on Job. Um, he's done a, a lot of work on Job and his suffering and this dialogue. Um, he says that what God is doing here, it's sort of a palliative movement by God, to use medical language. Here's how Jansen puts it. What Job is experiencing, the renewal of nature. So if you read these chapters, nature is renewed by these rains. It, what Job is experienced by the renewal of nature through the onset of these fall rains is a sense of comfort. So awesome is this vision of creation that he's taken out of himself for a moment and caught up in the wonder of a world teeming with life again. He's living in the desert. And now there's this panorama spreading before him, which is a scene of God's action, not Job's action, not human action. Jansen goes on to say that the rains fall in the desert where no humans live, simply to render the desert verdant, is as though God is inviting Job to give up the logic of reward punishment for a life-affirming strategy of risk-reward. Will you step in to this world that you didn't create, you don't sustain, you didn't cause? And face life, as Jansen says, with all its vulnerabilities in the path of, in the path of true participation in the mystery of existence. That, that, I would suggest to you, is the cause for Job's silence. It's awe, it's wonder, and then Job's revival. It's just rain. Simply rain. I mean, I know that's not good news for us in Seattle. I mean, sun was a good news today, but um, it's a comforting image nonetheless when you think about where Job is, that God causes rain, that God restores my soul. It's maybe a way of just reminding Job, just like Job didn't cause the rain, that he's not God. Um, God's God. I'm not God. I don't have to be God. I don't have to be in charge of my life. I don't have to figure my life's most perplexing questions out. I don't have to figure any questions out. It's not my job. I don't have to get answers. I, we love answers in our culture, right? We, we are taught to pursue answers. The scientific method, like uh, <laughs> the Renaissance, all of it is pushing us toward answers, finding answers, solutions. And perhaps Job is just being invited to rest in the questions. To, to take, a, take a moment and go, you know what? There's a lot of questions right now in my life. Maybe I don't need the answers. I, I heard recently, actually, just as a brief aside, that uh, Israel is going through the, the desert. I don't know if you knew this. What, what do they feed on? Do you remember this? This thing called manna. The Hebrew word for manna literally is question. It's a question. So if you think about this, 40 years in the desert, what is God inviting Israel to do? To pick up a new question every day and live off of questions. That's it. There are no answers for them. They don't know which way they're going. They don't know when they're going to get there. They don't know why. Live off the questions. And I wonder about Job doing the same thing. It's, there's a lot of questions for Job about why this has all happened. Can you live off those? Can you rest in those? And Job is just saying, I can rest. I, I find comfort, rest, in many questions. He's comforted in just being a human being. And coming back into touch with his humanity, his limitations, his finiteness, his brokenness, 
He's very broken. He's comforted in that. There's something comforting in that, isn't there? Think about that for yourself. In recognizing your limits. In not needing to know. I mean, some of us have been living off needing to know. When's school going to open back up? When is this thing going to end? When is my life going to go the direction I thought it would go 20 years ago? When's my marriage going to be whole? All these questions. How comforting it would be to let go of some of those things. I, I at least want those things. I want that to be comforting. Um, I want to find comfort in questions and mystery. And the challenge of the text is, at least for me, just to be completely honest with you as we begin, is that I don't actually know if I personally find comfort in that every day. I want to believe it. <laughs> I want to be comforted in the questions. I want to believe that I'm not God. I want to find relief in not needing to know and not figure it out. But if I'm honest with you, and I'll just invite your honesty with yourself, I just wonder if that's not, if that's not always true. I, I wish I could control more, much more than I do. I wish I wasn't so human. I don't wish I was Spider-Man or anything, but I do wish I could do a little more than I'm doing right now. I wish I knew the answer to when the pandemic was going to end. I, we're all so discouraged. I, I wish we weren't discouraged. I wish I knew what the future is going to offer my kids. Like, you know, what's happening right now for our kids? I wish I knew. I wish I knew how to relieve my parents' suffering. Both have terminal illness. Many of you are facing illnesses that are out of your control. Cancer, chronic disease, depression, anxiety. I wish I could, as I'm a pastor, I don't just preach. I wish I could heal you. I wish I could solve that. I wish I could say something that would fix it, Right? Broaden the scope. I wish I could end the housing crisis. I hate homelessness. People are suffering outside our doors. I wish I could end war. It is not fun to get the National Geographic here in pictures and see picture after picture of war. I wish I could do more than just recycle my plastic to affect climate change. All sorts of stuff. And when I think about it, and I've been thinking about it this week, so I'm a little teary, a lot of things are out of my control. And a lot of things are out of your control. And I wish they weren't. I wish that wasn't the case. So I just think I'm inviting us here as we begin Job, beginning with the end in mind, reading it backwards. Yeah, it's a story about suffering. I know I said at the beginning it's not, but it is. <laughs> how to suffer well, how to companion those who are suffering, how to be faithful, how to hold on to faith in the midst of seasons of suffering. We're going to learn all about that stuff. But at a meta level, it's really about just coming back into touch with our humanity, becoming human. We are human beings, if you haven't reminded yourself of that lately. We are created in God's image, but we are created. We are frail. We are broken. We are fragile. And we need to acknowledge, whether we're suffering or not, that to be human is to recognize our limits and our lack of control and our lack of answers and that we can't prevent bad things from happening to good people. We just can't. We can't prevent bad things from happening, period, sometimes. There are way more questions than answers in this world we live in. And yet, there is a promise embedded here in Job, as you read these last verses, that within that ecosystem of questions and perplexities, 
of comfort. There's comfort. There's comfort in the, in the time of loss. There's comfort because God is present. God's not some distant, angry, cosmic killjoy. Even here, the oldest book in the Bible, by its authorship, God is present. God enters in. God is quite literally enveloping Job in comfort, in rain, after a very hot and dry season in his life. Job is comforted in God's presence. And so the question, I guess, I'm inviting you to ponder is, will you be comforted in God's presence? Wherever you're at right now, are you going to, will you find comfort in your humanity, in your story, in the season you're finding yourself in? Whatever that season is, it could be a season of loss. I've mentioned discouragement. A lot of us are feeling that. Loss of faith or what you know, you've known of faith. Broken relationships. You know, you got a brother leaving. Are you going to find comfort in that because of God's presence? Not because it's going to, good things are going to happen eventually, but just because in it, whatever it is, God promises to be with you in your limits, in your imperfect attempts at living a life of faith, in your pain. You know, I shared a bit from Kate Bowler earlier. I just want to finish right now with something I read in an interview from her. Uh, it was an interview from last year where she's reflecting on the work of Dorothy Day. Uh, Dorothy Day was the, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement and uh, a saint of the, in the Catholic Church. And, and she said that she finds the work of Dorothy Day so incredibly refreshing right now. This, this interview was just last year. She talks all about COVID. It's a great interview. I can send it to you if you're curious. So just hit me. Don't actually hit me, but, you know, text me. But uh, Day's work is incredibly inspiring because she doesn't try to meet suffering with anything other than to say that this is the human condition and we are all living inside a precarity. I like that word. Things are very precarious right now. Anything we've been given can be taken away. There is nothing off limits. I think some of us think that some things are off limits. Either we think that those things are so sacred that nothing can touch them, or God has promised us these things, but she says we live inside a precarity. We live in a fallen world. And so Day's solution uh, is not to imagine that we can escape our circumstances, but instead to learn to live beautifully inside of them. That we might learn to live beautifully inside of them. Here's, a, here's the quote. Everything that she experienced, this is... Kate Bowler speaking, but in this interview, everything Day experienced poverty, structural and racial injustice, and more, she never described as anything for which Christianity has an escape button. There's no parachute. <laughs> Doesn't exist. Bowler, Bowler says, I find traditions like hers to be so rich right now because they don't offer solutions. They offer a promise, the promise of God's presence and of a community inside suffering. God's presence and a community inside suffering. That's what we need, a community inside suffering. That's what I want to be with you in this season ahead. Just a place of God's presence where we can know that we know that we know God is good and we are beloved. 
It might just be the one hour a week that you remind, you're reminded of that. So you come here to be reminded, and you go away, and the world around you is chaotic. Might you come here and remind yourself, be reminded by God's Word, remind each other of these things. Might we be this community of people inside suffering. Sorry, I'm a little teary today. <laughs> Invite Austin and Tavo and Jason back up as we continue worship. It's hard to suffer, guys, I know. I know some of you are really in it right now. (sighs) I really hate that for you. So I just want to be, as one of your pastors, inside that with you, whatever that is. Maybe it's being silent with you. Maybe it's praying over you as I want to do right now. Uh, Maybe it's just holding questions with faith. I don't know. But we begin. (laughs) And so let me pray. God, we thank you right now for your presence with us. And that your witness to us through this ancient story can remind us that even in the darkest times, you are present. That you desire to bring comfort to us. You are not a God of shame. You are not a God of retribution. You're not a God of anger. You're a God of love. God, pour out your love over these people. Speak words of love to them this week. Fill their their lives, their homes, their children's hearts with your love. We declare, God, as Scripture says, that love overcomes all evil. We know that there is evil in this world. There is darkness in our lives. So would your love do its work, God? And might we just be present to your love? We thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.